0: Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded for Antidote Festival in 2019. Across a diverse continent, African media trends are incredibly varied. But in many places, press freedom is under threat. While mass and social media can be a tool for positive change, these channels can also get co-opted by oppressive governments. This session brings together three journalists to discuss the intricacies of media and human rights in Africa. Mousi Segan, Executive Director at Human Rights Watch's Africa Division, is joined by veteran African journalist Catherine Gisharu and international correspondent Prue Clark. The session is hosted by Elaine Pearson. And while you're here, rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts. Enjoy the show.
1: So good afternoon, everyone. Uh, My name's Elaine Pearson. I'm the Australia Director of Human Rights Watch. Um, As you just heard, we are gathered today um, on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, We're here today for a really fascinating session on press and power in Africa, So, we're going to talk a bit about uh, media, freedom, and human rights across a very diverse and dynamic continent and one that doesn't get um, a lot of reporting here in Australia. Some countries in Africa um, still have a state-controlled media, places like Eritrea where there's basically no independent press at all. In other countries, governments are using various different tactics to prevent independent reporting and to try and cover up their abuses and muzzle critics. In Burundi, for instance, authorities have dealt blow after blow to the media, suspending their licences, preventing foreign journalists from reporting, and banning journalists from communicating directly or indirectly with international media groups like the Voice of America and BBC. In a number of countries, progressive laws have passed to protect freedom of expression and access to information, but journalists across the continent are facing threats every day. They face vague national security charges or colonial era sedition laws for reporting on topics that are considered sensitive by authorities. They are arbitrarily detained in countries like Tanzania, Burundi, and Nigeria. Intimidation, harassment, and violence against journalists occurs in Kenya, Angola, and Sudan. And in Ghana, earlier this year, an investigative journalist was killed. Living in a digital age has brought people across the continent together and has brought great opportunities for sharing sharing and accessing information. Journalists have used digital media to expand the boundaries of free speech. But at the same time, journalists and bloggers are also exposed to new threats like online surveillance, crackdowns on social media, and recent internet shutdowns in response to protests in Chad, Zimbabwe, and Sudan. To talk about all this and more, I'm joined by a wonderful panel of women today, and let me introduce them to you. I'm starting first uh, with Catherine Gicheru, She's a veteran journalist, sitting here to my left, with two of East Africa's leading media organisations. She was the first female bureau chief and the first female news editor of the Nation Media Group. She was the founding editor of Kenya's daily newspaper, The Star, and now she's an International Center for Journalists Fellow and the country lead for Code for Kenya. It's part of the broader Pan-African Federation Code for Africa, and this is an open data initiative. It promotes data journalism and civic engagement as a means of strengthening storytelling and audience engagement. Sitting to Catherine's uh, left is Mausi Segun. Mausi Segun is the tenacious executive director of Human Rights Watch's Africa Division overseeing about 30 countries across the region. Mousi herself has conducted field investigations. She's authored reports on cycles of violence, the abduction of women and girls, and the Boko Haram insurgency in northeast Nigeria. She's also written for the New York Times, The Independent, and Salon amongst numerous other publications. Mousi previously worked with Nigeria's National Human Rights Commission, and prior to that, with Nigeria's Ministry of Justice. Finally, Prue Clark at the end is a trailblazing international correspondent and media development specialist. She's reported from Africa since 2004 for the Washington Post, The Guardian, Foreign Policy and the BBC. She created and led uh, radio programming on the Ebola crisis in affected West African countries during 2014. Prue founded New Narratives, which is a nonprofit that deployed support to independent and investigative journalism in West Africa. She was the Director of International Reporting at City University of New York's Newmark Graduate School of Journalism, and Prue recently returned to Australia to join the Judith Nielsen Institute as a senior executive. So thank you, ladies. Um, I'm really pleased that we're going to have a really dynamic um, discussion on a range of issues. Maybe for an audience here that maybe doesn't know that much about the media landscape. Catherine, could I just get you to talk a little bit about what the media landscape is like and what are the different media ownership models across
2: the continent? Thank you very much. That was an interesting, I keep on being called a veteran, I feel, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I own I, it. I anyway, I just, I, for those ones who don't, you know, I mean, I have, I keep on telling guys, we've got 54-plus countries in the continents, so therefore trying to kind of, oh, it's like this or like that, but I'll give you an overview, but then I always ask, do your homework, please, because I won't cover everything. So essentially, what we have in the continent is from the extremes where we have government controlling everything and everyone. And then we have the other side, which is where we have very little government. But then, of course, in terms of media, we have problems in how the media is owned. So in some countries, like she mentioned, a lot of the media, legacy media here, I'm not talking digital yet. Legacy media is in the hands of government, so you, your radio, your TV, your newspapers are all government. That is in Eritrea, for example. And then you have the other side, which is like Kenya, where you have private and a whole. Me- it's I call it a mix of everybody and everything, because government owns TV; they have their own uh, the national TV, but there's private players. And then, of course, you have uh, newspapers and radios which are privately owned but privately owned, but mostly, like I know in Nigeria, in Kenya, and in some other African countries, it's business and politicians. Mm -hmm. So you have politicians who own radio stations. You have politicians who own newspapers. You have politicians who have TV stations. Quote, unquote, all commercial, but you actually know when, who owns what from the content they put out. Mm. So there's all this kind of mix, mix, mix of ownership. Government predominantly for radio in most in most African countries, government radio is big because obviously we still have a problem of connecting onto the internet like everybody else elsewhere. I always say this because it's true, not everybody is online. But the other thing also is because government has traditionally been where uh, from independence, it's been used to push, The government message and development is big, so we used to call it sanctioned journalism, which is where we say nice things about everything that is going on in our countries, but do not criticize. So the other players, the small community radios are owned by churches, mostly, mostly, mostly churches. And then we also have that mix where I say private business ownership, so in a way it's 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 a mixed bag of stuff, and depending on the countries, then you'll be able to say, for example, like in Kenya we have, hey, everybody is robust media, they say, but then the playing, the players and how that, in terms of how that impacts on journalism is different. The same thing in Nigeria, it's all free, it's all robust, but Again, the ownership has some kind of impact on what kind of journalism comes out. So in a nutshell, but not everything, that's, that's the landscape For legacy media, I'll talk about digital later.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a challenge, I think, for all yeah. of us to think about all 54 countries, which obviously are, are very different across the region. Yeah. But Mausi, I mean, different forms of ownership, different forms of repression, what are you most concerned about in the media landscape?
3: I mean, I think just, you know, taking it up from where Catherine stopped and, you know, that link between the political dynamics in each country and the media. Because politicians are active players in in media and information, access to information, the governments are extremely careful and At the very extreme end, you have virulent intolerance. And that, you know, it means for us that the right to freedom of expression, of course, you know, which includes free speech and a free media, is almost always a point of contention. Um, So governments would usually, you know, they start with a legal framework that empowers them to carry out raids, um, to shut down media houses. Uh, but beyond that, you know, it, it is the, the attacks on individual journalists, I think, is the most worrisome. Because, you know, the, out, the outcome has become, uh, for a lot of journalists, um, self-censoring. Um, for the, sometimes for editors. Even when the individual journalists want to publish critical, investigative you know, material, the, the editors will shut it down, and, and you know, it means that the, the public doesn't get the information that it deserves, but it also means that individual journalists are frustrated. Um, the constant move from one media house to the other, they suffer arrest, they suffer intimidation. Um, but, you know, for, it, it, for the more independent-minded media houses, so for example, you'll give the, the example of um, Eritrea. Eritrea in 2001, it was just, you know, um, I, I remember reading what one of the journalists who worked for the state media, he was in, in the media room um, that morning, I think about 5 a.m., waiting to cast the first news of the day, um, when they got a phone call from the, from the presidency asking him to come. He had to drop everything, show up there. They gave him a piece of paper and said, go read this. Mm-hmm. And he read it, once he, once he saw the paper, he had no choice. He read it and he said, state media, well, independent, private media is suspended from now. And from then till today, they remain suspended. That was what? Two, uh, 2001. I'm almost. That's right. almost 19 years ago, 18 years ago. And so all of the media in Eritrea is controlled by government. Anyone who attempts to speak independently, Publish independently so you can't have foreign journalists in the country. That's one extreme. The other is where you have, you know, everyone is allowed in, but there is subject matter restriction. So issues that the government considers as national security or public safety. Public. I mean, you have a whole plethora of reasons, including causing annoyance. (laughs) <laughs> or insulting the president, insulting the state in in Angola, Rafael Marquez, and yeah, he's 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 gone in and out of detention so often. Every t- the last time he was he was in court from 2017 to 2018 for the offense of insulting the state, you know. But in 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 many of these cases, you know, the 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 the, the bravery and the courage of journalists um, is, I think, is being whittled down um, because of all of these attacks. And those who do not have the guts to continue and the financial resources to continue to, to defend these legal cases in court, they're pulling out of the profession. And so, you know, it's just really closing that space, you know, for the public, for journalism, for the media, and usually that goes with for activists and for opposition politicians as well.
1: I mean, I think when you mentioned about the media raids and the national security issues, that resonates for a lot of Australians here right, right. now too, right? Because we're also seeing, um, you know, the the homes of some journalists, you know, being raided, of, of our own national broadcaster. Um, Prue, I mean, so I think some of these trends obviously are are somewhat worldwide, but Prue, you've worked in Africa for a long time. What are some of the unique challenges that you think African journalists really are facing right now?
4: So I'm I'm going to be a little contrarian. Firstly, let me just say how thrilled I am to... Catherine and I have these debates in various places we meet all over the the world. Not debates because we agree, but to be able to... (laughs) To have it here in Australia and have so many people come and be interested is a real personal thrill for me. So, thank you to Elaine and the Opera House and and you guys for coming. Um, So, it is 54 countries and I have had the fortune to be working in the countries on the better end of the scale to a large extent and I think it's important to look at those and the challenges that are coming there that that we, you know, in fact international players can have a, a, a role in. And I think what's most fundamental for for non-African people to understand, and I I understand this is true in many developing countries, the journalists usually are not paid a decent wage by their employers, almost universally. They often make their money in payments from people who are out to bribe them, who are politicians, but also from the aid world. Shock, horror. Um, The aid world will pay... um, will pay what are called, um, you know, per diems or transport to turn up to press conferences and things like that. And these are often so far out of whack with what the actual costs are. They're seen as payments for coverage in a a lot of ways. Um, Journalists will often be taken uh, on trips and the per diem is the the big attraction of that because they're paid so little in their newsrooms that to get this per diem, by some UN agency is, is a big chunk of the money they make that year. So you can imagine how the, the system is really distorted. The business models are really distorted. Um, so I've been a, big on trying to, to argue to the aid world to understand the dynamics of media in countries where they are developing a free press. There's been, you know, when a country is becoming, like Liberia where I spent a lot of time, and Ghana, even though we had that terrible attack last year, generally these are countries that are embracing a free press largely because they're interacting with global regimes global, and the global economy and they feel pressure that um, they will lose access to World Bank funds or they'll, you know, they'll stop being invited to, they won't get the Nobel Peace Prize and things like that unless they commit to some level of, of free press. And those are the really exciting places that, that I think we need to think about how we can support their business because if journalists are not earning money to do independent reporting, you can train them until they're blue in the face. If they don't have the money to make phone calls or take, do travel, they cannot do independent reporting. So that's what what I've been trying to do with new narratives is bring them resources to work with the key media houses that are serious about developing independent business models and then, let them go. They're thrilled to be able to actually travel and do great reporting and, and they set a higher standard in their countries for great reporting. And I think, you know, there have been some really interesting examples. Sahara Reporters is one we all look to where... And, and, and so this is, was done out of New York and it was reporting in inside, uh, inside Nigeria um, which allowed the reporters the freedom to, to operate outside of the jurisdiction so they were not at risk of being uh, arrested um, until he went home to Nigeria and ran for office and then got arre- arrested. <laughs> he got into politics, right. Yeah. But uh, the, the other thing I wanted, I wanted to quickly say is there are some really exciting things happening, one in Nigeria, premium times. Um, One in Ghana called uh, Joy FM, one in Liberia, Front Page Africa, and there are more and more of these where they're actually, they're they're using aid money in a smart way. They're really committed to doing independent reporting and setting a higher standard for journalism in the country. And the people are learning that's what great journalism is. I want to read that. I want to consume that media house. And I think these are the hopeful signs I'm seeing in Africa.
1: So, we've, I guess we've talked a little bit about traditional media and sort of mm-hmm. how things are, are sketched out. But I also wanted to focus a bit on the online space. Mm-hmm. Because even though internet penetration is a lot lower in Africa than other parts of the world, I think if you look at the Pew Research Center's last study, something like 93% of Australians have, you know, occasional access to the internet or have a smartphone. But if you look in most sub-Saharan African countries, you know, in Tanzania, it's as low as 25 percent. I think Nigeria, it's 41. Um, and Liberia then South Africa is, was 59. Liberia is 8 percent.
2: Eight, yeah. 18. It's so I end with Kenya. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think um, Kenya has got the fastest speeds when you do connect. But a lot more people are actually connecting on smartphones, especially the cheap ones, mm. because it's becoming cheap. You don't need an iPhone. Oh. Mm. Hey, mm. get real. <laughs> a lot of people are actually connecting on to the internet on mobile. And I think that is the best thing that could have happened, yeah. especially for the continent, because then you don't need all those wires and God knows whatever animals you need. Anyway, it, it, it's at least... Uh, in a way, getting people who would otherwise not be able to access legacy media, because remember, we still track our newspapers. Yeah. You will not see the nation going off the grid just to deliver to some 2,000 people when it knows if he stays on the highway to get one, maybe 15,000, yeah? So a lot of those people are not accessing new information and getting a mobile is like, first of all, fantastic, it's your bank. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, but it also gives an opportunity to get information which is otherwise not would not get to you normally. Normally, meaning legacy media. The other thing it also gives—it's given rise to a lot of new. I call them madnesses because I think everybody is trying to figure out how we're going to make money. We're all dying. The business model has died, but you—you you find a lot of interesting stuff happening online. So. For example, in Kenya, we have uh, John Allen Namo. He was an investigative reporter, but he couldn't do his be- his in kind of investigation in the TV station where he was working on. So now he's gone online. He's got his own digital whatevers, and the same thing with Anas, yes. who is mm-hmm. interesting in his own madness. Sorry, mm-hmm. Anas is this guy who has always worn a mask. Yeah. I don't know how he looks like. I know I've talked to him, but I don't know whether it was him because he's always behind this mask, and he he does this interesting exposés and mm-hmm. catches judges receiving bribes or prisoners being beaten up because he always uses under the radar. Under the radar, yeah. under, I mean, undercover cameras. So there's those kind of things. You have something, I, I love what you're saying in terms of the Sahara reporters, but in South Africa you have, okay, we are all crazy, but I love the Daily Maverick yeah. because yeah. it's try to okay. figure out how to make money, yeah. sorry. They don't need donors, but they actually get supported. It's an interesting mess out there because yeah. Daily Maverick is a homegrown news, very interesting in terms of comment and analysis. Uh, for anyone who knows the Gupta Leaks, please mm-hmm. raise your hand. Anybody? Hey! <laughs> At least two people know about the Gupta <laughs> Anyway, the Gupta Leaks is like the expose that showed the. Uh, the connection between Zuma, business, using a whole farm of bots to criticize journalists and anybody who are exposing corruption. You should read up on it. It's very interesting. It's South anyway, Africa. Just... it's South Africa. So that's another way where digital spaces are being used to provide alternative voices, which mm-hmm. I cannot see happening on legacy because internet, nobody controls the internet unless they shut you down, which is bad. It hasn't, I mean, it's happening. But in a way, the kind of reporting, for example, in Kenya, where I expect it to happen on legacy media, but it's not happening. It's finding spaces on digital platforms. And then, okay, so we are not all online. But the beauty of that is I will take it and share with you on WhatsApp. Hey, you've got it. So we will share stuff. I know this might be of interest to somebody, so I'll share with you, and you will keep on sharing there, because that's where we live. We are not tweeters. We are not Twitterati. Most of us don't do Twitter. We do WhatsApp. It's, it's where we talk seriously about stuff that matters. On Twitter is where you pretend to be something else. It's true. <laughs> the real me, find me on, on WhatsApp. So again, it's where you find all this digital stuff, what's happening on the digital platforms. Interestingly, I call it innovative, but to suit our own stuff, not according to the book, to Pew or whoever. We try and figure out how we can use the internet or digital technologies for our own stuff. How do, where do people live? How are people engaging with the digital platforms? Uh, Another thing is, for example, the star. The star. Oh, the star is a weird one. Not weird, bad, weird. Good because it tries everything and fails, and then tries again, which is good. But they've tried to figure out how to use the digital platforms and kind of reduce them to feature phones. I don't know whether you understand. Okay, you are all on iPhones, but I'm thinking, yeah, USSD, SMS. You get. How do we access information from the star using our U.S.S.D., which is a text message. Mm-hmm. So again, you think, oh, this is how the world is doing, but how does that suit my circumstances? It, because my audiences are not all on Twitter, Facebook, and they're using feature phones also. Those are audiences, especially in the rural areas, who are being rich because we break down the technology to what it fits, but you dis, and then, You kind of figure out that's my way because I need to get people on. And once uh, not, and it's not this Facebook free thingy, free basics. No, it's not free basics. They're actually paying for them and how you reduce. I mean, it's a whole mess of stuff. Like, you don't use too many images because that's data bundles. So, how do you engage again? So, there's all this interesting things that different media houses are trying to do, but it's also the thing that I can actually say what I want to say. What are they going to do to me? I create a new face or a new persona so that I can say what I want to say about my government and I know, hey, nobody's going to get me. But the other thing is getting what we're doing with Tanzania. Publish in Kenya and then they report in Tanzania according to that foolish country there called Kenya. They are reporting that our president, hey, I'm good to go. You're safe. You don't have to give me, we don't have to carry your byline, but we have your story, which is what we used to do in the good old days, I guess. Good old days when you had money. When we couldn't publish stuff in Kenya, we used to give it to share it with Financial Times. I remember Pru and then Financial Times would report and then we'd say, Oh, according to the Financial Times today, <laughs> <laughs> we have to be clever in this world because yeah. they are tracking you, they're surveilling you. How do we put our story out? Mm-hmm. So those platforms that the whole digital technology is like, yeah, it's a godsend, it's fantastic, it's giving us new audiences, it's re- getting to people, but it's also giving us problems, not too big because we've dealt with worse, but also opportunities which people are using. So I guess I'm saying it, it's fantastic, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm just happy to be alive at this time though. Anyway, sorry. I'm <laughs> Malsi,
1: maybe do you want to expand a little bit more on some of, I guess, the threats and, and the problems with new technologies?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I share your excitement um, because, you know, from a, from a human rights perspective, it's just the internet has just opened up, you know, an entirely new ecosystem, yeah. you know, for sharing and consuming information. But what has happened is that it has also become a hotly contested yes. battleground. It's, it's who has access to individuals' phones, their, you know, their um, um, their pages, their web pages, their timelines, and I think that for for governments who ha- have been able to control the traditional media, you call it one name. Yeah, legacy. The legacy media. I like that. <laughs> you know, but with, with the internet, con- control has become a lot more difficult for government. And so, again, the response the same way, plethora of laws, cybercrime laws, um, in places like Uganda, uh, uh, an internet tax, you know, so, you know, suddenly, you know, people woke up and you try to get on WhatsApp. What pops up is a message asking you to go pay your tax first. Mm-hmm. So, you've paid for your data bundle, mm-hmm. you have your internet modem in the home, but you cannot access the internet until you have paid that tax, you know. So, for, I mean, some, some, some organizations have done the, the statistics. Within three months of that law being passed, the internet usage dropped by 30% in three months. About 3 million people dropped off the internet. In a country that is not, you know, has mostly poor people who are struggling, you've shut down a large percentage of people from receiving information. Now, the internet has also been used for activism. And, you know, people have used WhatsApp messages, Twitter, Facebook, to galvanize action, whether it's street protests or it's demonstrations or even to, to win voters during elections. And I think that the concern, from, from, again, from the authorities is the lack of control. So they're jumping in when, you know, the messages around protests begin, either to shut down the internet completely. I mean, none of them, nowhere in Africa, and I doubt that it exists anywhere in the world, do do they have the capabilities to shut down the entire internet. Mm -hmm. So, what they do is to shut down platforms Um, because most of the platforms are run by private organizations. What, What happened, for example, in Zimbabwe was that the government ordered the network providers to shut down and then pretended that they didn't, you know. So when the public came for the, the private uh, uh, providers, um, you know, they, 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 they turned and said it was the government, but there was no documentation to show it. Anyway, so, you know, government is using all kinds of um, tactics to try to slow and control the spread and the sharing of information, but also becoming extremely sensitive you know, to information shared over social media. You know, mm-hmm. people post something about a government official on Facebook and they are facing criminal proceedings in court. Um, in places like Tanzania, um, bloggers and, and others, anyone who is streaming information online, um, you're being asked to, to register. And so you, if you do not register, and the, I mean, the, the, it's the equivalent of about $930 a year. Um, and you know, for a lot of people, that's completely unaffordable, and so you're, you're again shutting down the opportunity to use social media and the internet to to, to mobilise people to organise, you know, um, um, action. It, with, with with places like um, Nigeria, many of 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 the the um, the newspaper outlets that Prue mentioned, they're. Online platforms—they do not—they don't—they don't print anything, and almost every time when the government moves against them, it's you know to carry out raids in their offices or to try to shut them down or block particular content. So you know so, sometimes they have trolls who monitor um, for words for particular words. Um, they have surveillance um, who, who check, and you know once it triggers their you know <laughs> alerts bells, they shut down that site or, you know, or or they block the content, you know. So, in in many ways, it's one, affecting citizens' rights, um, the right to to mobilise, the right to assemble, especially for peaceful protests, or even to get information during elections. Um, But also, I think more importantly, how to share and express their opinions freely.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think we're now seeing with the internet shutdown even across Asia, it's becoming you know the the way to shut down crisis situations that you don't like, from West Papua to Rakhine State to to Kashmir. Even now, talks about Hong oh, Kong yeah. too. Um, Prue, I wanted to sort of get your thoughts a bit about, I guess, the opening of space for hate online and you know extremist content, but also just sort of hate filled speech and what. Tech companies are doing or aren't doing to address these issues.
4: So, so from being the positive person in the first round, I'm going to be the very negative person here. <laughs> um, I mean, look, you know, the things that Catherine is doing, you know, Nigeria and Kenya and, and South Africa always lead the way in taking advantage of of, of these um, technologies. And 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 I agree, what you're doing is really exciting. It's just not trickling to the poorer countries in the in the continent, and. What I see there is far more worrying. I mean, look, um, there are, the the trolls are alive and well in Africa. I mean, when I write an article, a s- lot of my, a uh, lot of the American media houses have just cut comments now because the stuff that is written, it's funny actually, it gets funny, it's so so ridiculous. And these troll armies are paid for by the governments mm-hmm. and they are Europeans um, or American companies. I mean, we saw Cambridge Analytica yeah. played a big role in the Kenyan election and I'm sure that that, you know, spreading misinformation through social media and I'm sure that that was just, you know the one that we saw. I'm sure it's happening. It's alive and well, oh. and has been for many years. Um, and 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 my other big concern with social media, in in West Africa, it's, it's much more Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's almost exclusively Facebook in parts of West Africa. Uh, And they have these closed Facebook groups. And just to give you an example, almost every Liberian on the internet is in one of four or all of four closed Facebook groups. And these Facebook groups have about 300,000 followers. The biggest newspaper in Liberia has about 50,000 likes. So inside those closed Facebook groups are the agenda-setting discussions of the day, and they are f- absolutely fueled by misinformation. But people are breaking news in these sites, including misinformation. They're they're publishing you know documents to prove you know some claim that they made. You, you don't know what to think um, when you when you read these sites. So there's that. But they're also just sucking all the audience away from the major media houses that are trying to do some good reporting. And so, you know, what was once a a very dodgy business model is now completely destroyed. It's almost impossible to make money doing legitimate media in, in, in some of these countries because of Google and Facebook. And I think that they have, well, the amount of money that the American government alone spends to try and prop up democracy in Europe, I mean in Europe, in Africa, let alone media specifically, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. And at the same time, these West Coast tech companies are coming and just decimating the, the local media and democracy as a result. So I do feel there's a huge obligation on these companies to do something. They, they throw a bit of money through the Google News Initiative and Facebook partnerships. But I don't see them doing anything very um, real about actually tackling these problems. And, you know, I think Africans need to do more to actually make these problems known. We, we hear about, you know, the, the Facebook being behind violence in Myanmar or Bangladesh or Sri Lanka, but we never hear about the problems that it's causing in Africa. And I, I think the only way we're going to make them they could do things to help media in Africa. We just have to force them to do that by shaming them, I think. What kinds of things will be we like? Well, I mean, look, I don't know enough about technology, and I, I look to people like Maria Ressa and to Catherine and to Daily Maverick to, to actually come up with ideas, and they are, but we need to bring them together to, to come up with ideas. I mean, if simple as why can't Google AdSense, which pays, Peanuts at the moment to to African media houses. Just say because we believe that African media needs to be boosted, we're going to double or triple the amount that we pay to Google yeah. me, to media houses. Ca- exactly, that's what everyone says. As if they're going no,
2: I, I, I I just think <laughs> I think it's. It would be too much to expect the Googles of this world and the Facebooks to say, "Oh, poor Africa. Let's do something for you guys." Yeah. Let, sorry, I was going to use French. Anyway, <laughs> I know it's not <laughs> going to happen. I know it's not going to happen. And what what we are trying and that's why I keep on saying we're trying to figure it out for ourselves because, like the big these these guys have sorted out all out it's not only in africa i think the media everywhere has been yep. decimated yep. by the googles and the facebooks and god knows whoever and that's why i keep on saying where are our audiences and how do we get to monetize mm-hmm. some of that mm-hmm. and monetization for me doesn't mean i just know i have 150 people here advertisers these are the no i don't mean that way need there has to be a value thingy here going between me and you as my audiences, isn't it? So what we always think, and that's some of the stuff we are saying, crazy, 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 but making sense Mm. for us, not Mm. for everyone. Mm. Is trying to figure out if I have this audience, what is it that they want and can they support me Mm -hmm. like Mm. the Maverick is doing? Because at the end of the day, when it comes to to support for media, for newsrooms, or good journalism. It's not going to come from the foundations, because I know they throw big money at us. But at some point, there's a sell-by date, and then what the hell do you, oh, sorry, what do you do after that, yeah? So, I always say, we're always thinking that way. When it comes to misinformation, I believe, and this is what I keep on telling everybody, I'm going to create an army of fact checkers and debunkers, whatever you want to call them, because they're living in WhatsApp. So in all the groups I'm in, and I tell the guys who are my, I call them an army of of debunkers, because that's, it's easy. It's not realistic, but it works right now, because I'm trying to, we're trying to work with Medan, it's a US company who can, do figure out how to, hey, it's tech again, eh, me and Prue, we are not techy. But how you can actually get into Facebook, uh, not Facebook, uh, into WhatsApp, and find out what the, you can debunk a lot of that nonsense that goes on, we are sharing, you know, she has received, don't ask me from another group, eh? we know you. So that kind of thing, using tech, how we can do that, for me, and disinfo trying to figure out how to support journalism, investigative journalism, too, in the continent without necessarily always counting on externals. And I call externals like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but if you get some funding from somebody, sometimes they tell you, oh, we only want you to think about climate
0: change.
2: Climate change is good, man, but I need to look at it from my perspective, eh? I need to talk about the thing that is really in front of my audiences. But if you're only giving me money to do climate change, then it doesn't really make sense to me because bloody hell, oh, sorry. My audiences want to talk about the fact that there is no no medicine in their hospitals or something. Mm -hmm. So dependency on externals doesn't work really well. So this is why... We try and incorporate in most of the stuff we do As for Africa, we try and figure out what is the revenue. We always ask where's the money. We're doing good journalism but where's the money. But it's We're as simple as, I mean,
4: here's one other example is, you know, the Guardian is asking all the time for support for their reporting. Yeah. Daily Maverick has done that as well. Yeah. Most African media houses just don't have the technology to do that and their diasporas would happily pay yeah. a, few, a few dollars a year. Yeah, right? they would. But I'm thinking
2: more the people I want to reach are the guys who are in, at home or in Nigeria or in wherever, because when you look in terms of the diaspora, I want people to access this content, but I, I want to also be able to say I can count on the diaspora, but not forever. Because at some point, what really matters to them is not really what care, what guys at home to want to know about. Yeah. So again, that is why like Sahara Reporters yeah. made sense, because it took out stuff which was internal, outside, for and it was re- being written for people who are living out of West Africa, for example, because it concentrates, but essentially outside. But the guys in Nigeria really want to know why is it that Makoko has never been fixed. Makoko is one huge slum which is on the water. Please do your Google. It's a fantastic place to live (laughs) if you ever want to live on water with your boathouse. Okay, no, maybe not. But anyway, it's an interesting play. But the kind of stories that we want to tell for our audiences at home using those technologies, it also has to kind of give them impetus, fees must fall, or Zuma must go, or something, activism, not the Arab Spring, though. So how do you use those technologies? And I just love this... Uh, I think inwards, I'm I'm thinking insular, I'm not throwing out in the external support and all the rest of it, but I always say, okay, guys, give me money, but how does it matter to my guys, and my guys mean my audiences internally? Because the external audience has got humongous choices, Mm -hmm. and putting stuff behind a paywall won't work for me. Getting support from their diaspora, yeah. But please don't tell me what the hell you want to read. Sorry. I won't change my writing for you. I'm writing for the bigger audience, which is here. Mm -hmm. And then getting all those guys who are not right now here to engage in these spaces, because it's actually not going to be very expensive. There are more and more people getting onto the Internet or mobile, like I said, than actually wires and all those things that people do normally elsewhere here. So for me, it's how do I use this tech to get my people, sorry, not my people, my audience, <laughs> not my audience, our people, sorry, whatever. So, yeah, so sorry. And, I, and, I, and I think, I think, I think that, I think that
3: you've, you've just really nailed it. It is, it is the fact checking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, what we don't want to do is to give that power to, to the service providers, yeah. to the owners of the platforms. We don't want Twitter or Facebook deciding what is extremist language mm-hmm. and, you know, having the power to censor at will. We don't want to exchange one dictator for, you know, a, a, a set of mm-hmm. if, if, a few individuals um, because they have the, the resources to do it. So it is, you know, journalists on the ground, those who have the skills to investigate and ensure that fact-checking occurs. And I, I'm seeing a little bit of it, but, you know, the, the concerns around hate speech around incitement to violence and, you know, the spread of hatred, mm. whether targeting marginalised communities or, you know, or minorities. Or gender. Or gender. Yeah. You know, it could be, it could be anything. I, I think every one of us should be worried about all of that uh, and, and think through, you know, different approaches to addressing that without censoring without muzzling free speech. It is to counter false information with the correct information, Mm. not shutting it down, not keeping, you know, uh, 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 asking people um, or or criminalizing uh, um, um, free speech or or defamation or libel, but really just infusing the right information where there is false information. And it's not just individuals who do that. Governments, people in yeah. government deliberately manipulate information, put it out there to achieve some political agenda. Mm. And so who, who, who do we give that power to? It cannot be the state because, you know, uh, the, the tendency for abuse is, is extremely high and people are paying the price for that. And it cannot be the social media uh, service providers either. So where do we, as, as journalists, you know, where do we find, you know, that I don't know, I think I've said it before, is it an an ombudsperson who determines who that is, you know, or is it just journalists on their own or media houses on their own, you know, challenging false information wherever we we, we come in contact with them?
1: I guess just in the interest of free speech, I also want to make sure that the audience has a chance to ask (laughs) questions um, because I think this is a really vibrant and rich discussion, but we do have a couple of roving mics around the room. So if anyone would like to ask a question of the panel, we have one down here in the front, second row. The back, too.
5: Hello. Hi, thanks again for sharing with us. I had a question with regard to, uh, I think, some of the example you're mentioning is already happened in France. They, they, they had a the case where they ask um, uh, journalists from the monde to go and monitor the data coming on Facebook and the like. Um, but there, again, probably the, the, my, my my question is the there is a view in um, what's the risk in terms of um, for the journalists to actually potentially lose independence? Because financially, you're re- going to rely on those one paying you to do the job, to actually uh, checking. And uh, the other question is there, is there any maybe in our world a question to be asked, and in Africa also, um, of, you know, how are we going to to keep on allowing a quantity of news which hasn't been valid uh, with no uh, valid check oh. and and consider that actually is acceptable? Maybe there is a there is a need at a certain point to come to bring the judicial aspect to it and say, well, someone who actually published something with no fact and no proof of what he's doing is correct, then we need to question that sanction might be needed. Is it it actually, and I I know that probably you're going to panic about the fact that maybe you take freedom of speech, but does freedom of speech allow actually lies? That's my question.
2: Okay. Okay, look. A whole president can lie in front of the world and nothing happens. You're not going to stop people from putting out misinformation and fake news and God knows whatever animal they want to call it. I think for me... Although we say it's journalists' work to do this, I know it is, but we are how many? If we were to count how many journalists there are in this room, I mean, even this is not enough of an army to counter the misinformation that is coming out, either being thrown at us by the Cambridge Analyticals of this world, our governments, or God knows whatever else, whoever is sharing out this stuff. So for me, I look at it as two-way. Good journalism means you fact check and map fact check. I mean, that's good journalism. Basic. Go back to that. Get everybody to kind of wire themselves back to what good journalism is all about. Then the other thing is also create this beautiful, I mean, I'm thinking about where we have literate consumers of the stuff we put out. Mm-hmm. So that they can say, wait a minute, it says abc.com. But actually, actually, it's ABC.org. It should be ABC.com because that's a legit ABC website. But I put out stuff and it says ABC.org and it claims it's this headline. I know it's wrong. We need to start doing what I call media literacy. And media literacy is where do I go for good and meaning good news doesn't mean that you can't figure out about Kim Kardashian. But I'm just saying good uh stuff, uh, 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 content that is verified and factual. So I think we as journalists have our role cut out for us, but the audience also we need to equip and empower audiences to do that. And it's not an African problem, unfortunately, sorry, it is a worldwide problem. And for me, I'm saying if I can create an army of Kenyan, who know how to fact check WhatsApp because they know how, they're the prefects in WhatsApp, then I guess if all of us do the same thing, how many WhatsApp groups are we in in this room? We can actually create a movement and then throw in the technology, we are good to go. Sorry, that's my response to you. Sorry. Another question, back.
5: Hi. Um, I'd like to ask, you've mentioned many times money and technology in Africa. Now, the Chinese government has been going to the African continent, throwing as much money as any government would like to take. Now, what is China well known for? Propaganda and the Great Firewall of China. How do you see that? Mao
3: okay, do you want to yeah. take this one? Uh, I'll, I'll take that. Um, I, I think it's sad to say that China is just the, the latest
0: yeah.
3: in, in the, in the uh, series of... Um, tech predators, who've, um, you know, preyed on African public um, and public institutions. Um, we've had German comp- corporations, Israeli companies, um, a lot, a lot from the West selling sovereign um, capabilities to African governments and worst of all, governments who have a history of dictatorship, of authoritarianism. So you know, um, China is is selling face recognition um, equipment, software to to, to Zimbabwe, um, to Kenya, to Nigeria. I mean, several of them. Um, so it's 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 more, uh, it's more about the 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 corporate responsibility of business corporations operating in Africa. We, we cannot, we've, we've realized that we cannot rely on, on governments who are the buyers and consumers of these materials to do the right thing or to use them. So it is our job as, a, as human rights organizations to monitor and to hold accountable companies who sell equipment to African countries that are then used to carry out human rights abuses. You know, so for, for us as a human rights organization, what we've tried to do is to research how these equipment have been used. For example, in Ethiopia, for many, for many years, um, the government trolled, trolled on social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, and then on the basis of, of the information they get using those surveillance materials, equipment, um, they arrest individuals, throw them in jail, torture them. And we have had you know, conversations with the, 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 the service providers on how the, the, the surveillance materials are being used on their platforms. You know, so there are many, many points at, at which we can intervene. But it is important to make that business link. Um, that, and and I, 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 again, you know, going back to the fact that it's not just China, So, so there are several players in that field, it is identifying which corporations, it is identifying where they came from, and what the terms of service agreement are between them and those countries. Um, this surveillance equipment is, 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 is commonplace now in, in Africa, and, you know, governments who cannot afford to provide very basic services are investing heavily in buying all of this. And, you know, the target is really who? It's opposition politicians, it is journalists, it is human rights defenders. You know, so as, 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 um, as we... Um, as human rights organisations, what we have tried to do is to dip, dig deep into how these equipment are being used. Is The sale themselves or the business decisions themselves are not wrong or the fact that it is from China or wherever. It is how they are being used and that is our concern for the individuals, for the different groups that are targeted by these um, um, governments who have these capabilities.
4: Can I just add to that? I, th- I think um, I agree with Massey that they're just the latest um, imperial power to come into Africa, but what is profoundly different is that there is no transparency. They will come and, you know, have some huge mine or build some road or, and they just will not answer questions of journalists. There is no, you don't know, I mean, you know they've paid bribes to get these deals, but then. There'll be, you know, uh, labour violations. There'll be environmental uh, problems. They'll have done deals with the local community that they just blow off. And as journalists, you cannot get any answers from them at all. And, you know, the Brits and the Americans and the French at least, try, you know, pretended they were trying to engage and look like they were <laughs> answering while, hi- I admit, hiding all sorts of wrongdoing. But they're just a brick wall. And I think that, that there needs to be more. I actually think we need to put more pressure on governments to, to do the right thing f- by their people and, and, and behave better. I mean, ask more, of the, more transparency of Chinese uh, Absolutely. But, you know, I think
3: for some, for some reason our experience with Chinese corporations have been slightly different in Africa. They have responded. We've met with them. Um, in, in some cases, they've actually reviewed some of their terms of agreement mm-hmm. because, you know, we have our ways of finding them. And, um, and I think that it's, it's, it is engagement that is worthwhile. Yeah. you know, um, whether it's a Western corporation or it's a Chinese one. Yeah.
6: Another question. Hi. <clears throat> uh, my question's actually to you, Prue. I noted that when you were speaking, you uh, it seemed that you don't believe, I don't wanna say you don't believe, but it sounded like you uh, very much encourage Western or like foreign aid in terms of assisting Africa with storytelling or media, etc. cetera. Um, And I really liked what you said, Catherine, about letting people within Africa tell their own stories. As someone that's part of the diaspora, I don't believe I can speak on behalf of anyone within Africa because I was born and raised here. Um, So I guess I have a couple of questions. First of all, do you believe that people within Africa could be able to tell their own stories without Western assistance? Because it doesn't sound like it from what you said. And not to discredit the work that New Narratives does, um, and the second question is I don't really believe that journalism is objective and so you as I'm going to assume a white woman um, as a journalist in Africa how do you ensure that you keep yourself accountable and keep your unconscious bias out of your storytelling
4: thank you for asking I entirely agree and understand the premise all and I and, and I like to th- I I am aware of this in everything we do. Nothing I do is done me saying, you do this. I said, what do you need? And I I think that, and and the truth is, because so much of the donor money is people making decisions in London and Washington who have no experience on the ground. I do think that aid money can play a catalytic, catalytic role in Africa. I've seen it, we've all seen it happen, if it's done in a smart, respectful way. And I ask this question all the time. The truth is, we, we have brought uh, about three million Australian dollars to journalists in, in West Africa, not Australian dollars, the equivalent of three. Some of it is Australian government money, which is great. That um, they would never have had, they would never have had the opportunity to do the reporting they do. And I don't tell them how to do their reporting. I just say, what do you need? They say, we need the resources. We need access to these opportunities. We need to be connected to the rest of the world. We need to go to global conferences, all of those things. These are things that I had access to as a journalist learning in the ABC newsroom. And I think that that, and and so I ask them constantly, am I helping you? They can't get access to that money because the aid world is racist in many cases, and they are not going to give them the money if they ask for it themselves. Um, So, yes, I'm playing a conduit between that and and I I think it's important to keep asking that. As a journalist reporting in Africa, every story, I don't believe in the concept of fixer, it offends me, Every story I do, I do with a local journalist and I share the byline with that local journalist. And I entirely understand that I do not know their country the way they will and I will always benefit from reporting with them. Uh, But also, they don't know what is going to be interesting to a Washington Post audience. So, and, 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 and on top of that, I don't parachute in. I only report on countries that I've known for a long time and know everybody and I'm constantly asking and I think that's really important. I would love my reporters to be doing all the reporting that's done from from these countries. But the truth is they don't quite understand what is interesting, what makes a news story that a Washington Post editor is going to take and there are so many layers and they're problematic and I agree with you. We agree entirely (laughs) There's actually a wonderful article about
1: fixes um, told from the perspective of an Indian journalist. I think it was in the Colombian... Um, journalism journalism Review recently. Which I would, yeah, yeah. Really encourage people to, to take a look at. I think it's yeah. really terrific. We have time for one final question, but folks uh, will be around also in the FOIA. So, very short... Oh, sorry, it was right next to you here. Right next to you. Yeah, Oh, right there. <laughs> Hi. Um, thanks very much for, for all your comments. Um, at the beginning of the of the of the session, uh, there was a bit of a discussion about who had influence in the media um, in Africa and how diverse it was, um, and that there was a sort of combination of politicians and churches and so on. Um, I think that's an issue that resonates here because the um, we have quite concentrated media ownership in Australia, and it definitely does influence the colour and tenor of reporting on issues. I'm just wondering how conscious you think uh, your your consumers of media are, are are of that bias that might be brought associated with the with the with the ownership. Do you think that they see that? Do you think they know about it, do. Um, or do you think they, it's something that?
2: Yeah, they just... do. They do. Yeah. They do. I okay. mean, in Kenya or in Nigeria or in South Africa, well, South Africa, yes, also. I think the audience know who owns. Which news which newspaper, which radio station, which TV station. And they take whatever information is given. Oh. This one is owned by the Moy family. The Standard newspaper, for example, is owned by the Moy family. Moy is the previous president whose shadow shall ever linger over us. Anyway, he owns that media group. And we know they cannot criticize anything to do with the Moy family and or their political alignments at that particular time. So every time you read the story, you will know, oh, it's coming from this side. The same thing with the NMG. NMG is owned by the HH. Oh, sorry. HH is His Highness the Agakan. Khan. I, yeah, I call him HH because I got used to calling him that. So HH has got other business interests. So certain things you will see they will not dig too deep about. That's true here too. It's yes, true in- and, yeah, and it's, it's the same with the radio and it's the same with other TV stations. So the audience knows and they sometimes take that position and say, oh, nation won't report that and it's true they won't because it, ha- it will impact on HH or his other business interests. So the audience knows, but they will still consume that knowing that it's coming from this point. So it's good to know. Yeah,
3: I think there is a level of cynicism around yeah. or, or the media uh, across yeah. Africa. People generally, you know, want to see behind what's behind, where, where yeah. is this coming from, yeah. Oh, it's because you know it's the nation newspapers and it's yeah. owned by Bolatinombo, the you know yeah. the, the chairperson of the ruling party. So you know people know how to categorize information they get, but still, um, you know, it's it takes a lot, lots of capital. To run media houses, and it's only the very few people who are rich enough to have access to that kind of capital that's available. Uh, But online, you know, the web, uh, um, internet is changing all of that. You know, so it's. I think it's even more disturbing that their attempt to shut down what would I think for me would be the ideally independent, organic, you know, expression of. thoughts and opinion that's not filtered through, you know, whatever political leanings or, or social um, 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 capital you, you have invested in, in making your comments. And um, so, yeah, the internet has both the good and the bad, but I think that the, the, the good for me, from my perspective, um, it way, way outweighs the, the the negatives.
1: So, I love how we've just come back full circle. <laughs> So thank you very much for that final question. Um, We will be mingling and hanging around in the foyer if anyone wants to ask any follow-up questions. But I just want to thank our panellists so much for this really engaging and interesting discussion. I think there's a lot more that we could say and do. So thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.